Welcome to Fort William Baptist Church Audio Sermons. We're so glad you could join with us today. This fall, we have begun a new sermon series called Soteriology. During this series, we will aim to unpack how our God applies salvation to sinful men and women. We are returning to the great doctrines of a sustained and refreshed Christ Church since the days of the Apostles. With the great works of God before us, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification, our hearts will be stirred up to hunger more of the work of God. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Our sermon text this morning is Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Let's give our attention to God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Father, we do pray and ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. Amen. So today we get the joy of starting a new sermon series, Soteriology, Experiencing the Saving Works of God. And for the the fall season, we're going to take a deep dive into the wells of salvation. And specifically, we're going to be looking at this aspect of salvation. We're going to look at how God applies Jesus and all of his benefits to us. So Christ purchased benefits for us. He died and he was raised. And we're asking, we're looking at this matter of how does God bring those benefits? How does God bring Christ to us? How do we participate in Jesus? And so this sermon series is going to focus in on a lot of big theological words, and there's no way around these words. In fact, the the title of this series is a big word, soteriology. What does that mean? Well, it means the study of salvation, the study of salvation. And week by week, we're going to be looking at big words, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, just to name a few of the big words we're going to look at. 
And some of you are familiar with these big words. You've heard them before. You maybe have heard sermons on them before. You might have some definitions in your mind already for these words. But others of us, some of these words are going to be brand new to us. So to begin this series, I want to choke up on the bat to use a baseball analogy and start with something really simple. So this sermon series and all of the big words, soteriology, can be boiled down to a, a three-word sentence. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. That's what we're going to explore this fall, this simple little sentence. And to begin this series, I want to just reflect on this simple little sentence, God saves sinners. What does this mean? What is going on in these words? So let's meditate together for a few minutes. God saves sinners. These words summarize the great gospel passages of Scripture. They sum up what John says about the gospel in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Do you remember what he says there? He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and, gave and sent his son to be the, the propitiation for our sins. These three words, they sum up Paul's summary of Jesus' life and ministry, the gospel, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with our scriptures, with the scriptures. They sum up what, what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. He, he tells the church what Jesus did for them. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. These three words, they, they sum up the gospel as it's revealed in the Old Testament. The gospel is there. Do you remember when, when God spoke first to Abram? Genesis chapter 12. What is God saying to him? God saves sinners. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. These three words, they, they sum up the praises of God's people from, from their beginning to their, their end. They sum up Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The psalmist is celebrating these three words, God saves sinners. In fact, these three words sum up Jesus' entire preaching ministry. What did Jesus go about saying in the towns and cities of, of Galilee? He said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God saves sinners. What else do these words mean? God saves sinners. Well, these words reveal to us the peril of our condition and what we need from God. Due to sin, our sin, we stand in all sorts of need. Because of our sin, we stand guilty before God. Therefore, we need to be rescued from his wrath and his judgment. Because of our sin, we've become polluted. Our deeds have made us filthy and dirty, and we need to be cleaned up and made pure. Because of our sin, we've become corrupted. Our, our mind, our hearts, our wills have become bent and out of shape. We desire evil instead of good. We desire that which is ugly instead of that which is ultimately beautiful. And so we stand in need of this radical inward renewal. Because of sin, we're enemies of God. 
Sin is not a misstep or a miscalculation as if we just got our math wrong. In sin, the scriptures teach us we join forces with evil, the enemies of God, and we seek to do something to God. We seek to subjugate God to our own selves, our own wills, our own desires, and we need salvation from our hostility against God. And ultimately, in sin, we are dead people, dead And we need life. We need resurrection. God saves sinners. These words reveal the basic working of salvation. Think about the grammar here because it's important. God is the subject of this sentence. He is the one who acts. He is the one who saves. And and sinners are what? They're the object of this sentence. They're the ones who receive salvation. They're the ones on whom God acts. This little sentence stresses this point. Salvation is not a joint project. Salvation is not a matter of throwing in with God to help him sort out the the mess of this world. Salvation is not the matter of God just getting us up on our feet and and then we run the rest of the race in our own power, our own strength. The simple little sentence teaches us that God's grace is not a joint project. In the simple little sentence, God saves applies to our whole lives in Jesus. They apply when God's grace first appears in our life, when when he calls us effectually when he causes us to be born again, the truth is there, God saves sinners. And when we've walked with Jesus for 10 or 20 or 30 years, as we think about the doctrine of sanctification, these three words apply there, God saves sinners. And when we meet Jesus face to face, which we will someday, and our bodies are glorified and made like his, these three words are gonna apply to us too. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. These words lead us to see the goodness of God. It's in these words, and it's only in these words that we really can begin to see God for who he is. If you don't have these words, you cannot understand God. Because inside of these words, you can see the radical generosity of God that you can't see anywhere else. Inside of these words, you see his unceasing kindness, his unfathomable mercy, his his steadfast loyalty, his enduring love. We love these words because in these words, we get to see the glory and beauty of God. God saves sinners. This is the sentence that God has given to us to proclaim. What the world needs are these three words proclaimed to them again and again and again. And what we have to offer this world, and the only thing we have to offer this world are these three words. We get to shout, God saves sinners. And the glorious thing is, is when we take up these words and we speak them to our children, to our family members, to our our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus, to the world, to our neighbors, to our, our coworkers, we get to follow in the footsteps of the great men of old. When we say God saves sinners, we get to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist, who when he saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan River said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we say God saves sinners to other people, we get to follow in the footsteps of the great missionary, par excellence, the Apostle Paul. He preached a very simple message, be reconciled to God. God saves sinners. Sinners, And this is what we get to chase after and explore this fall. God saves sinners. So that's the introduction to the sermon and this 
sermon series. And the aim of this sermon, what I want to do with the rest of our time together, is help us get our, our bearings as we think about soteriology, the study of salvation. And so we've gotten some help from this little sentence, God saves sinners. That simplifies the whole matter of soteriology. We don't need to be scared of this word. We don't need to be confused about it because it teaches us that God saves sinners. Now, with the rest of our time, I want to give you some landmarks and boundary markers that are going to help us think through soteriology. So if you've ever moved to a new city, you understand the importance of getting your bearings. So when you move to a new city, everything is unfamiliar. The streets are unfamiliar. You don't know any of the names. The layout of the city is unfamiliar. And so it's really easy when you arrive in a new city to get turned around, confused, and lost. I remember when Shane and I first moved to, to Dallas, Texas for seminary training. And if you know anything about Dallas, Dallas is a monster of a city. And so you've got this city in North Texas in the middle of plains, and you've got all of these people, millions of people just crammed together in a city. And it's a confusing place to move because the road systems there are something to behold. Um, they're confusing, they're bewildering. There is the traffic to consider. There are more cars than, than the roads can handle. And if you get on the road system at the wrong time, you might be stuck there in a parking lot on a freeway for hours. And then there's the roads themselves, the freeway. Some of them are 10 lanes wide with, with multiple exits. And then in Texas, because they, they like to do things big, they like to stack their freeways on top of each other. And so there's this big mess of spaghetti. And so you show up in a city like that from northern Wisconsin, and you're thinking, this is just too much to handle. And so how, how do you make it in a city like that? Well, we got help from a friend. He explained the city of Dallas. He said, you can understand Dallas, and you can get around in Dallas. You'll never get lost, completely lost, if you remember this. Take three fingers with your one hand and stick them up like this. And then take another finger and, and put it across those fingers. There you understand Dallas. Well, you might get lost for a bit. You'll never ultimately get lost. And, and what that is, is in Dallas, there's three freeways going north and south. There's one on the west side, down up the center, and on the east side of the city. And then there's a freeway cutting across all of them. And so if you can remember that, you're going to be okay. Well, you might get turned around on some city streets. If you can just make it to a freeway, then throw up your fingers and remember which freeway is which finger. Just find your spot on the freeway and then navigate yourself home from there. We found that so helpful because we got lost many of times, but then we would get on the freeway and we would navigate home from there. And so as we think about salvation, we need a simple roadmap like that. And this is what we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In these verses, Paul covers the whole matter of salvation. It's amazing what he does. In the space of 12 short verses, he, he reaches back before the foundation of the world. He stretches back into the counsels of the eternal God. And then he reaches forward to the end of all things where everything's going to end up under Jesus. And then he goes to the cross where Jesus died and purchased our salvation. And then he comes to us in the present who believe. And this text provides us the perfect vantage point for how we can make sense of salvation. Here is the roadmap for salvation. And if you can get these words, these short verses down into your heart, you're never going to get lost. So we're going to work through Paul's words by asking him four questions. We're going to ask him, what do we have in salvation? What do we have in salvation? 
And we're going to ask him, why do we have salvation? And we're going to ask, how do we get salvation? And we're going to finish by saying, for what purpose do we have salvation? So what do we have in salvation? Why do we have salvation? How do we get salvation? For what purpose do we have salvation? And here's my counsel to you. If in the weeks ahead you get lost or confused or turned around, simply return to Ephesians chapter 1, these 12 verses, and just go through these questions in your mind. Because then you'll find your way home. You'll find the paths of salvation. So let's start. Question number one. We're asking, what do we have in salvation, Paul? And Paul gives us an answer. Look at verse three in your Bibles. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's our answer. Did you hear what Paul said? What we receive in salvation are not just a, a few spiritual blessings. God isn't in the business of giving us just a few table scraps from his table. Here's just some leftovers. You can have those. That's your salvation. No. God doesn't just give us a few. He gives us everything. And Paul stresses this glorious fact. What we have in Jesus is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we've already received that in Jesus. So we ask Paul, well, what are you trying to do here? Think about this. Ephesians is a letter to the church in Ephesus. And this is really the first thing that Paul says to these believers who have gathered together to read his letter. You've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is Paul trying to do with these words? Well, we find help if we keep reading on in the book of Ephesians, because when you read on in the book of Ephesians, this is a common tactic that Paul employs. Paul is searching for the most extravagant language he can find to describe salvation. Look at verses six and seven. Paul writes about the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. And in chapter two, verse seven, he, he points us to the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul reminds these believers of his calling to ministry. Listen to how Paul talks about himself. He says, to me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then we find Paul's most heightened rhetoric at the end of chapter 3. Paul turns and he starts praying for these believers. And listen to what he says and how he says it. He prays, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Riches lavished, riches immeasurable, riches unsearchable, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he prays that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. These are the words that Paul uses to describe what we have in salvation. And so we ask, well, Paul, why are you talking like this? What's your point? 
And it's this, he's, he's working hard to wake us up so that we might see what we have in salvation. He is fighting with everything he has. He is employing every word at his disposal. You feel it as you read Ephesians so that we wouldn't become dull or bored with this great salvation. He wants us to see, truly see what we have in Jesus. This is helpful for us as we think about this series on salvation. So believer, brother, sister, remember this. What you are considering this fall is great, incomparably great. And one sign that you're on the right track, that you're on the paths of salvation, is if you find awe in your soul as you consider and think about what you have in Jesus. You're on the right track, you're on the the paths of salvation. If you can speak and think like Paul, every spiritual blessing, riches immeasurable, riches unsearchable, riches lavish. It means you're really seeing what you have in Jesus. This also means something for us. We can tell if we've gotten lost, if we've gotten turned around on the city streets. We can tell when we're lost, when there's no awe or wonder in our souls. If we can't speak like Paul, if we can't pray like Paul, we haven't gotten it yet. And so we need to go back to Ephesians 1 and pray, oh Lord, would you, would you allow me to speak and see like Paul, to say things like every spiritual blessing, to be able to say riches unmeasurable, riches unsearchable, riches lavished. So that's question number one. What do we have in salvation? We say with joy in our hearts, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Question number two. Why do we have salvation? So let's look at verses four and seven because Paul answers our question there. He writes, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So why do we have salvation? Well, there's no evading the force of Paul's words. With determinative language, Paul stresses, he highlights the sovereign activity of God in salvation. Now, what Paul writes in verses four through seven is very dense. He's piling up words and it's hard to figure out how they're all connected together. And so it might be helpful for the sake of clarity to turn verses four through seven into a dialogue between Paul and us. And so we turn to Paul and we ask Paul, well, What do we have in salvation again? And he answers, verse three, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so then we we ask Paul further, well, why do we have this salvation in Jesus? And Paul gives a very specific short answer. He says this to us, because God decided to. Note the language that Paul uses. Look at verse four. Paul writes, he chose us in him. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption. And so we receive that, but, but Paul's answer, God decided to, he chose us, he predestined us, makes all sorts of questions start coming up in our minds. And we ask Paul, well, why did God choose us? Why did God choose us? Paul, was it because we had done something that God chose us? Or perhaps did he, did he choose us because we have a propensity towards doing some sort of good? Or perhaps in his foreknowledge, did he look ahead from eternity past, seeing us now that we would believe, and then he chose us? Why did he choose us, Paul? And Paul says, no. He tells us this choice was made before the foundation of the world. 
God made his choice before you or I existed, before you or I had done one good thing or bad thing. And so we ask, well, what determined this choice, Paul? What led God to choose and to determine beforehand that you and me and all our brothers and sisters in Jesus would share in this salvation? And Paul gives us a straight answer. And he's telling us this throughout Ephesians chapter one. He says, dear believer, don't look inward for the cause of your salvation. Don't look at yourself at all. Don't look at your worth. Don't look at your deeds. Don't look at your wisdom. Don't even look at your choices or your will. Rather, you must look to God and his sovereign will. Believer, you have salvation this day because it was the good pleasure of God. The ground of your salvation does not lie in you at all, but it lies in God himself and only in God. And Paul is super careful to point this out to us. He wants us to see it. Verse 5. Paul writes, he predestined us. He made this choice beforehand. What did he do it according to? Well, according to the purpose of his will. And again, in verse 11, Paul uses similar language. He says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, we ask, according to what? What is God making his decision according to? According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Paul gives us this broad, sweeping, glorious statement. God is sovereign over all things. Why does something happen? Because it was happened according to the purpose of God's will, his good counsel, including our salvation. And Paul is giving us reliable directions if we'll receive them. And so we can, we can think about this study on salvation and we can reason this way. If these studies on salvation lead you to think a lot about yourself, your own wisdom, your own deeds, your own decisions, your own choices, your own worth. You've made a tragic mistake. You've gotten lost somewhere. You got off the path of salvation. Rather, we know that we're on the paths of salvation when we see these truths and we're humbled to the floor. When we're humbled to the floor. When we see how big and glorious God is and we see how small we are, we know we're traveling in the right direction when God is wise and powerful and sovereign and we are small and needy. So that's question number two. What do we have in salvation? We have every spiritual blessing. Why do we have salvation? Our answer is God, God, that's why. Question number three, how do we get salvation? How do we get it? Look at verses seven through 10. Paul is giving us an answer again. He writes, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul here is very concerned to locate our salvation in a very specific place. Salvation for Paul is not an abstract idea that's just floating around in the minds of, of intellectual people. It's not some obtuse concept that we just need to, to memorize. Rather, for Paul, he speaks about salvation in very personal terms. Every blessing, every good, every grace we have in salvation is found residing in a person. Listen to Paul, there's this repetition that he uses throughout these verses. He says, in Christ, in him, through Christ, in the beloved, and he does this multiple times. 
It'd be a worthwhile exercise to go home and print off the book of Ephesians and grab a yellow highlighter and just highlight every instance of in Jesus or with Jesus or any variation on that. And what you would find is that your book, the book of Ephesians, would be solid yellow. So we ask, well, what is Paul doing with this language? Why would he keep saying in Christ, in him, through Jesus, in the beloved? Why does he keep saying preposition Jesus, preposition Jesus, preposition Jesus? Paul is focusing our attention solely on Jesus. And Paul does this for good reason, because all of God's saving activities are bound up in Jesus. This is how Paul understands salvation. God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. All of that happened in Jesus. All the benefits of salvation were won by Jesus. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. All the blessings of salvation are found where? They're they're found exclusively in Jesus. He is the well of salvation. You will only find water there. There is no water anywhere else. Paul says, verse three, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Even more, everything is careening towards a specific destination point. We can ask, well, where is this world going? Some pessimistic, sometimes we're pessimistic and we're saying, well, it's going in a handbasket somewhere. But Paul says something different. God is going to unite all things in Jesus. That's his purpose. That is, that's his plan that everything, things on earth, things in heaven would find their unity in Jesus. So Paul is preaching a very practical message to us. What is he saying to us? He says, seek Jesus. Look for Jesus, trust Jesus, cling to Jesus. And this language of Paul has to color our our study of salvation through and through. Think about it like this. To study salvation is to study Jesus. To, To seek salvation is to seek Jesus. To experience salvation is to experience Jesus himself. We cannot separate salvation and Jesus. They're together. And we can think about it like this for our series. Jesus is our landmark for salvation. So during this series, if at any time you lose sight of Jesus, if you're not seeing him, if you're not searching for him, if you're not looking for him, if you're not clinging to him, you've gotten lost. You're off the path of salvation. And you can know this. You're traveling on the path of salvation if you see Jesus, this great landmark before you. We must always direct ourselves towards Jesus. This brings us to our last question. Got question one, question two, question three done. Now we get to ask, well, for what purpose do we have salvation? For what purpose do we have salvation? Look at verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you all, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." So as we think about salvation and all that we're going to learn in the coming weeks, we need to understand this. God has a motivation. He has motives for this. He has a motive to save us from our sins. 
He has a motive to redeem us from death and to call him to himself and to pour out every spiritual blessing. There's a reason why God is doing this. That might strike us as a bit funny. We often like to keep our motives hidden away in secret. We don't like people to know our motives. Why? Because our motives are often, if we're honest with ourselves, sinful. They're, They're twisted. And we'd be horrified if people could have like x-ray vision and look into our souls, seeing past our actions and our words, looking into our souls and saying, oh, that's why he's doing that. That's why he's saying that. But God is so different than us. His motives are always pure and good and his motives have never been tainted by sin. They have never been impure or unholy and therefore God does not hide his motives from us. Rather, he publishes them and he preaches them so that we might know them and rejoice in them. So what is the motive of God? What is he seeking in all of this? Our salvation exists for this, and Paul says it twice in these verses, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. That's what God is aiming towards. We could put it a different way. Salvation is a spectacle. It's a revealing of God's glory. When God rescues us and redeems us and justifies us and sanctifies us and ultimately glorifies us, what is happening? God's good and gracious character is revealed. God is showing off himself to us. What does this mean for us? Well, it means this. God is great. God is great, and his goal is that we would see and know his greatness, and that we would not only see and know his greatness, but that we would taste and experience his greatness. And then after knowing and and tasting his greatness, we would turn and we begin to speak of his greatness to everyone, and most of all, to God himself, that we would tell God just how great he is. And this is the last piece. This is the ultimate test of our knowledge and understanding of salvation. If what we learn and see in the weeks to come, if if what we learn and see in the weeks to come doesn't cause our hearts to, to sing to God, extolling him for his greatness, then we can be sure that we've gotten off the paths of salvation, that we've gotten turned around. But we can be sure. We can have confidence that we are traveling in the right direction if you find your mouth speaking like Paul's to the praise of his glorious grace. If you, if you can say that you are walking in the paths of salvation, and we have to understand this, God's salvation creates worshipers of God, men and women who love God's greatness above everything else. They create men, like, men and women like the psalmist who said, your steadfast love is better than life. Therefore, my lips shall praise you. Therefore, my lips shall praise you praise you. We see it happening in Ephesians 1. Paul experienced God's salvation. What is he doing? He can't stop talking about God's greatness. And he wants the church in Ephesus to do the same thing. Why is he writing like this? Because he wants them to speak and treasure God like he is and to say from the bottom of their heart to the praise of his glorious grace. So I'm excited for this fall. We get to study salvation. We get to study the works of God. And we get to praise God for it. And so I, I, I want to close by giving you four prayer requests. We should be praying for these things throughout this series. First, we should pray that he would give us hearts 
full of awe. That when we hear of these spiritual blessings, we would wonder, that we would wonder at them. That's the first one. Second, we should pray that our eyes would clearly see God's sovereignty and power. That we would say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Third, that God would give us hands to cling to Jesus. None of this matters unless you trust in Jesus. And so we ought to pray, Lord, give me hands that cling to Jesus and never let go of him. And last, we should pray, Lord, give me a heart and give me a mouth that we might sing of God's glorious grace, that we might be like Paul, that we might extol God to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do give thanks this morning for salvation. And we ask that you would do all of this for us. We need it desperately. And we pray for the weeks to come that you would reveal your glory and that as you reveal your glory in Jesus, you would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.